A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And we'll continue a little bit about Rabbi Avram Kalmanovich. Um, we started off on his yard site this week and the world that he acted in. And there's so much that he did and accomplished. So each uh, and every angle is a whole other story. So we'll explore another few later on in his life. What he's most famous for is his rescue work during the war. So we'll start, we'll pick up the story from there. We got up to um, this part of the story last time. He is, at the beginning of the war, he's the rabbi in Tiktin of the town, and he's also the president, as we said, of the Mir Yeshiva in Poland. The war breaks out, both Tiktin and the Mir and the rest of eastern Poland fall into the Soviet zone. Let's keep in mind, and here I'll, I'll um, give a, you know, a bit of the context. A lot of his stories, and it's really legendary stories, an amazing person, how much he was able to do, and, and uh, how much his uh, dynamic leadership and charisma played a role in the activities of Aratzala during the war. A lot of those stories are quite well known, so what I'm going to focus on more this time is, is a little bit of the context, which I think it's lost um, or confused or misunderstood in the in the greater framework of his stories. So he, in a week before the war breaks out, August 23rd, 1939, the two foreign ministers who were originally arch enemies, uh, Soviet Russia and, uh, and Nazi Germany, so Joachim von Ribbentrop, and uh, Vladislav, I mispronounced that, Molotov, they signed the non-aggression pact, and the secret clause of the pact, which was only discovered after the war, is that Soviet Russia is going to invade eastern Poland and take it over, and they also gobbled up eventually the Baltic states. So eastern Poland falls under the control of Soviet Russia in the beginning of the war, and Tiktin and Mir and many other places, especially what's known as, uh, for better or for worse, is known as the Litvische or Lithuanian part of Poland, the Kersi region of northeastern Poland at the time, um, today mostly in Belarus, was was t- taken over by Soviet Russia until the Nazis renege 
on their agreement and uh, invade Soviet Russia almost two years later in June 1941. So the... Now they're under the Russians, and no one anticipates the Nazis coming at the time. They're under the Russians, and the Russians is a problem. They stamp out the Jewish religion, they close yeshivas, they close down all Jewish political activity, Zionist activity, cultural activity, they close shuls, they persecute persecute religious figures, both Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, they targeted churches and priests as well. And they, they, um, and of course they're anti-capitalist. It's the main thing. So they arrest uh, store owners, business owners, anyone who they suspect of having money, and they send them to Siberia and and nationalize all the businesses, and and it throws everyone's life into a turmoil. And many of them are refugees. They run to Vilna. Vilna becomes part of Lithuania, which was for a time independent. And the yeshivas are all in Vilna, and being that Ram Kalmanovich is the president of the Mir, he's dispatched at this time to the United States to help the Mir. They need money, they need to be resettled in Lithuania. He needs He's being sent on a fundraising mission because of the displaced Mir yeshiva as a result of the Russian invasion of eastern Poland. That's the reason he goes to America at the beginning of the war. And he arrives in the United States, and very quickly his job expands. First of, excuse me, first of all, he was involved already in the Vada Yeshivas before the war, and he was close to the Bhaya Moiser Grzensky. And at the time, Rablazer Silver and other activists in America had started what came to be known as the Vad Hatsala, which was an extension of the Agudas Arabonim, and eventually came to incorporate other religious organizations in America at the time, the Mizrahi, the OU, the Agudas Yisrael, and others, that the, to unite all um, religious Jewish activism under one banner to save rabbis and yeshivas stuck under the Russian occupation. That was the goal of the Vada Tzola, to help rabbis and yeshivas stuck under the Russian occupation, the refugees, to raise money for them, and to even help them get out, because it was unsustainable that rabbis and yeshivas should be under the Soviet anti-religious uh, Russian uh, government. So, Rabbi Ram Kalmanovich, in that capacity, it expands his work from strictly working for the Mir to rescuing all yeshivas, and not just raising money for them, but to try to procure visas for them. And even when they get the visas, and they're able to get out, so he has to help them get out, and he sends them money to cover their costs, and the Mir Yeshiva and other thousands of refugees who end up in Japan, and then later in Shanghai, he covers their costs, he covers their expenses, he's doing an enormous amount of work. Yeshivas and rabbis that get sent to Siberia for their what the Soviets considered their counter-revolutionary um, um, activity of learning Torah so, and spreading it, God forbid. So they were sent for that crime, they were sent to Siberia, which wasn't a great place either. And he would even be able to send packages there. Ram Kalmanovich was raising money for that. And this is in the capacity of the Vad Hatsala. Um, this evolves later on in the war when if we move away from the sphere of strictly yeshivas and rabbis and move away from the sphere of of uh, refugees, but rather looking at the overall Jewish situation in Europe, not only in the areas by Soviet rule, but by now the Nazis have, uh, are, you know, that's much later on in the war, 1942, 1943, when the Nazis are carrying out the final solution and they had occupied pretty much the entire continental Europe, 
And now at this point, the Vadat Sala expands its activities to be an all-encompassing rescue effort and not to be limited to one demographic over the other. So they, they, they move to the forefront of rescue, of, uh, of trying to, to, to influence um, the United States to receive more refugees, to try to send uh, food packages uh, to people in, who, are, who are stuck in, in, in different areas, in different countries, and under the occupation, to try to lobby the efforts in Washington to encourage um, you know, any type of rescue possible. And Ram Kalmanovich, again, is at the head of the Varatsala in this rescue effort as well. So the, it, it moves from, again, from a Soviet danger to a Nazi danger, which was much more dangerous, final solution, ab- absolute extermination. And at the same time, um, it, it also uh, moves from the original plan of someone who had been, you know, how he evolved so, so easily into the new role of leadership. Someone who could have said, my job was to help Miri Shiva. I'm sending the money to Shanghai. And even when the United States declared war in Japan, he continues to send the money. He's able to develop new lines. He could have, again, he could have said, you know, I, I can't send it anymore. It's enemy territory. He finds a way through Sweden with her Shlomo Volba, through Switzerland, through the Sternbuchs and others, through South America, Uruguay and, and Argentina. And he has contacts everywhere in the world. And he's able to continue supporting. And he single-handedly, basically, uh, uh, supports the Miri Shiva and, uh, uh, during all those years, during those six years in Shanghai. And he doesn't limit himself to supporting the Mir in Shanghai. He, he says there's, you know, the Jewish people are in danger and, uh, and we have to take a more active role in the overall rescue. Um, and he and he's very dramatic in his rescue efforts. He's going to Washington. He's meeting with Morgenthau, the Secretary of Treasury, and other senior officials in the State Department and in Congress. And he's uh, and he's um, and like I described in the last one, you know, he knew how to faint when he needed to faint, and he did it in Morgenthau's office also. He didn't just do it in Shul's when he was speaking on Shabbos. He even took a, a car on Shabbos when he felt it was necessary to raise money, if he would get an emergency telegram, and this happened once or twice, or maybe even more over the time, that he got an emergency telegram that was delivered to him in the middle of his, in middle of his davening or in the middle of his Shabbos Suda, and he went out on this ride um, to raise money, to sound the alarm, to be able to take care of something on Shabbos, because he felt that this was as important to do. In fact... There are so many versions of the taking a car on Shabbos and who accompanied him and where did they go and who went with him and who did he take along that one of my, uh, one of my colleagues who's researching the activities of Ravram Kalmanovich, he say, pointed out to me that it's unlikely that he took a car because if you combine all the versions of the story that are published in many different publications over the last few years, then there was enough people to fill a bus who were going along with him. So he probably was taking a bus around and not a car. So we have to just amend that version of the story. And, um, and this is, this is, uh, something that he, um, believed in through his every fiber of his being. He was probably the best speaker, public speaker that the Vanatsala had. Very strong, very, um, 
passionate about what he was doing, and he was able to influence people. And the stories involving that are endless, whether it was to continue supporting the Mir in Shanghai, whether it was to support yeshiva guys in Siberia, or whether it was the overall rescue towards the end of the war, um, of trying to bribe the Nazis to save Jews, trying to help Rabbi Mechober Weissmann on the working group in Slovakia with their efforts, or trying to even try to inf- try unsuccessfully to influence Roosevelt, um, for the most part, um, into doing more for active rescue. He was he was uh, one of the uh, main um, centers of the rescue um, efforts at that time. If we continue till the end of the war, and um, he, he's re- in the post-war, he brings the mirror over. He goes back to his old position. Now that the uh, the Holocaust is over, and unfortunately, most of the rescue af- rescue efforts were not successful. The Nazis uh, had destroyed most of that world. So the Avarat Sola, along with Rebbe Kamenovich, reverted back to their old position. Their old position was to rescue rabbis and yeshivas. And uh, as soon as as soon as the war ended, that's what they went back to. So they so they one of their attempts was to bring the Mir over. So Rebbe Kamenovich not only continued to support them after the war, the Mir stayed in Shanghai for close to two years after the war was over which is also an interesting story. They, they didn't just pick up and leave once the, the day after the war ended, but they were stuck there for quite a bit of time. And he brings them over. He's able to lobby, again, the State Department to, to consider them special rabbinical refugees, whatever it was. I'm not sure the legal classification that he was successful in, in, uh, in getting them and to get them U.S. citizenship even before they arrived. And this enabled them to speed to expedite the uh, process of immigrating. And in 1947, most of the Mir came over. So here, after supporting them all these years, after f- funding their whole operation, after bringing them successfully to the United States, he even goes ahead and sets up a place for them. Originally in Farakaway, actually. And the Mir Yeshiva's first stop in America, besides for San Francisco, where they didn't really have a Yeshiva, they just stopped there for a few days. Um... And they cross America, and they came come to New York. Aram Kamenovich has a place set up for them out on the island, out in Farakway, and they that's the Mir's uh, first stop for about a year. And um, eventually, he sets them up in uh, later on in Brooklyn. So, so what was interesting was at the same time, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, the Rashiva of the Mir, was part of the yeshiva in Shanghai, as was Reb Chatzka Levenstein. The Mashkiach, but the other Rashiva of the Mir, the main Rashiva, primary Rashiva of the Mir, was Rablazi Adolfinkel, and during that time he had been in Eretz Yisrael. Now in 1944, in Eretz Yisrael, all the Mir's out in Shanghai. All the Rum Kamenovich is in America, Rablazi Adolfinkel's in Eretz Yisrael, and he founds the Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And he asks his old friend, Rabbis Zalman Meltzer, who was the Rashiva in Eitzchayim, which was a Yerushalmi Yeshiva, he asked him to send him the ten top guys because he's starting yeshiva, and Rabbi Zalman accommodates him. He actually sent him nine. One guy came from Tehraviyira, and the names of those people, or some of them, came, became quite famous uh, rabbinical leaders in Yerushalayim. Afterwards, Rabbi Chaim Brim, Mashi Landau, Rabbi, Rabbi oh, the names are slipping, but uh, there's quite quite a few of them were famous. Matafrains. 
either way, they'll come to me, I'll, I'll remember the other names, but they are the founders of the Mir Yerushalmi Jews, from Yerushalmi families, who are from Eitz Chaim, and he calls this new yeshiva, Rabbi Zilu calls the yeshiva the Mir, because he's the yeshiva of the Mir. So the Mir is in Shanghai, there's a new Yerushalmi yeshiva in Yerushalayim called the Mir, and there's a Rav Kamenovich funding the Shanghai people in, in New York, and he brings them over to New York. And when he opens this yeshiva for them in Farakaway, he also calls the yeshiva the Mir, because he brought the Mir over from Shanghai. So this caused something of a dispute where the uh, real Mir would be. And uh, eventually they worked things out, and that's how there are two Mir yeshivas uh, today, which is also a whole story of how they both developed. Um, Ravram Kamalovich did not rest he continued on to newer projects, and he combined his Vat Hatzala activities with a new issue that was on the horizon. The new issue that was on the horizon was with the founding of the State of Israel, even before that, with the UN voting on the partition plan in November of 1947. So many countries of North Africa and the Middle East um, started to make problems for the Jewish communities, the very ancient and large and prestigious and very often wealthy and and integrated Jewish communities of the Sephardic lands of North Africa and the Middle East, uh, Sephardic Jewish communities um, started to, started to uh, their security was at stake, and their economic security, and very often their even physical safety um, was at stake. Now they were being accused of being Zionists. And Avram Kamenovich, having been traumatized by what he had just gone through, in the war, and all the rescue work, and how he saw that he was very often unsuccessful at getting the United States government to do more rescue work. He feared that it wasn't just a a physical safety of a few isolated Jews in these countries. He actually was scared that it was another genocide. And he, therefore, he went wild in Washington again. And he said, learn from your past mistakes. Don't you see, just two, three years ago, I was here talking about the Jews of Europe, the same danger. You have to see how he's writing in these letters, how he thought it was another Holocaust. And, and uh, you know, thank God it wasn't. It was, they were ex- very often they were expelled, very often their jobs were taken away, but it was not much more than that. There was a minimal loss of life. Sometimes, um, sometimes individual Jews were accused of being Zionist spies, and sometimes they were hung or convicted or killed, and there were a few pogroms where there was actual murder of Jews, but it never reached a genocide or gas chamber proportion. But Rav Kalmanovich was scared that it would, and uh, having just just being two, three short years after the war, and he and he, um, he throws himself into major rescue work uh, for the Jewish communities in Egypt and Syria, um, where the pogroms were bad, where the expulsions were bad, where um, where they were burnt, torching shuls and and throwing Jews out of their homes, and it really was a terrible time for the Jews of these communities. And and he succeeds in lobbying Washington this time to give them refugee status, and because they're refugees, they're able to immigrate above the quota system and get out of Egypt and Syria, and very often come to the United States and sometimes to Israel. And uh, But he wasn't just concerned for their physical safety, he was also very involved in their spiritual welfare. And he um, is very involved, in, especially in Morocco, in France and Morocco. And this is directly related to his Vadat Salah work after the war. Vadat Salah didn't close, as is well known, 
uh, did not close up shop after the war. They actually intensified their activities after the war by building yeshivas and shuls and kosher food places for the survivors. So here he combines that effort, it's already two, three years after the war, to to integrate Sephardic uh, young uh, yeshiva age students into yeshivas in France that are run by um, by the Varat Sala, and he and he fills them since there were not enough survivors. Survivors, you know, there was not not many Jews left from Europe, and he felt that his vision was that uh, similar to Shagafayim Mendelovich, Actually, there was an encounter of Shagafayim Mendelovich and Isaac Shalom. The great uh, hero of Syrian Jewry, great philanthropist and activist and builder, visionary, everything. So Rav Shagafayvel Mandelovich told him once. He said after the after the Holocaust, Ashkenazi Ashkenazic Jewry has been decimated, and this uh, signifies a new role and a bright new future for Sephardic Jewry, and we must invest in those institutions. And Rav Kamenovich believed. A similar, a similar way, and that uh, he very much was involved in the Eitzer HaTayra network in Morocco and France and other places. It was also battling against the efforts, the educational efforts of the Alliance, the French uh, Jewish organization that that um, brought that brought education in a secular way, um, or the Zionist the Jewish agency work. And here he was bringing a religious alternative to build a Torah network and a yeshiva network. So he was heavily involved in the uh, renaissance of Sephardic Jewry, both in the physical sense by saving them and also in the spiritual sense by building institutions for them and bringing them over into the United States. So this was a little bit more about Rav Kamenovich. This was Yudhi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. Uh, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to places of interest of Jewish history, including places like Morocco, which has become more and more popular lately. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.